travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode 99, traveling Xinjiang, China with Josh Summers. China has the world's largest population, is the fourth largest in terms of physical size, and as a result, has an incredibly wide variety of environments to explore. On this episode, we'll dive into traveling China, a country we haven't covered very much on our podcast, focusing on the northwestern region of Xinjiang. An American living in the region who has written a travel book and hosts a YouTube show about the area's exotics offerings will give us a unique insider's perspective and hopefully pique your interest about this relatively unexplored corner of the People's Republic of China. From Bangkok, Thailand, this is Scott Coates, and my co-host, as always, is... 99 podcast episodes uploaded. 99 podcasts <laughs> uploaded. I don't know the rest of the lyrics yes. for that. I just thought of that. But uh, yeah, happy 99th episode, Scott. This is Trevor Ranges Thank from you. Uh, Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Yeah, and it's a, a nice Sunday morning. We're recording on here. And uh, yeah, this was a, a, a very rare time when somebody emails us. We've had it a few times, but Josh emailed us and said, hey, guys, like, this is my life up here in Xinjiang. You guys haven't done much on China. Would you consider? And we checked him out. And uh, yeah, it, it, it looks pretty cool. So we're excited to get to him. But I mean, tell me a little bit about what you've done in China, Trevor. Yeah, I went to China for the first time. I guess it was 10 years ago now, maybe nine years ago, uh, I went with the APLP or the East West Center. We went to China for a month and we spent a right. bit of time in Beijing. And then uh, a small group of us went to uh, to uh, Lijiang and uh, and Kunming and, and around that area, like near just north of Thailand. Um, and, and, you know, like traveling around China, like one of the, the women I was with, she could speak Chinese very well, like fluently, so that helped overcome mm -hmm. some of the challenges. But like, uh, you know, it seems that like China can be a very challenging place, but it also can be a very surprising place because like many of the preconceived notions that I had about China and the Chinese people were, were totally wrong, you know, and, and I, it was just an amazing experience. So I think, you know, we haven't talked a lot about China on the show just because like our, our China information is somewhat limited, especially in, in perspective mm -hmm. of the size of the country. So I think it's great that we have someone on and to talk about something that I have very, very little idea about. I don't really know much about Xinjiang, so it's going to be pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, I don't know much about it. I mean, I think now actually I've strangely been to China four times. The first time was with the same leadership program, APLP, that you mentioned. I was in Beijing and then a town north by about four hours. I crossed north to south on the Trans-Siberian and then on their bullet train down to Hong Kong with my dad. And then I had a business meeting a couple of years ago in Beijing and I cycled through Tibet, which... Um, I don't oh, know. You know that's what I, I, same kind of thing yeah. for me, like Hong Kong. You know, like, I, like, I've been to yeah. Hong Kong or and Macau, I've been to Macau, yeah, yeah but sure. I don't know that I can. Even yeah. Shanghai, right? But I don't know. China, you're right, is such a big place. And you have been there four times, and that's pretty cool. 
Same, same, but different. Yeah. And, and just a little something we want to mention here is uh, there's been, you know, not great news the last couple of years about uh, some of the things going on in Xinjiang and, and with the, the local populations there. And for the sake of this podcast, uh, we're going to stay away from that. Josh has a life there, so we weren't going to go down that rabbit hole, unfortunately, but uh, it is a, a great episode. And before we get into it, also, Trevor and I uh, pay for this thing, the editing, the hosting of the podcast, and we do need some help to keep it going. So if you could go to patreon.com or click on the donate button on the left side of talktravelasia.com, you can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. But man, we'd love a little bit more than that to help this thing keep going. So thanks for that. So um, Trevor, uh, what do you think? I think uh, I'm looking forward to this episode. And again, people can go to that website, uh, talktravelasia.com to donate, but they can also go check out the show notes because I think they'll be really helpful for this one just to help get your bearings and whatnot. So uh, Scott, why don't we bring in our guest? Okay. Josh Summers is an American who first moved to China with his wife in 2006. By no strategic plan, they ended up in the beautiful, remote western region of Xinjiang, which borders most of Central Asia. They fell in love with the region and started a life there. During that time, Josh has written, photographed, and filmed the region, worked for publications such as the BBC, Lonely Planet, DK, and many others, as well as having published his own guide to the Xinjiang region and a China travel guide. He joins us by Skype from Dallas, Texas. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys letting me join you. Great, great. Well, um, look, how does an American guy from Texas even end up in America? Can you take us back a few years and, and let us know how it all happened? Yeah, you know, that's a part of the world that you don't uh, normally just accidentally get to. And so it was just one of those things where my wife and I were recently married out of college and decided that we wanted to go on an adventure. We both spoke Spanish. And, uh, you know, went, started looking at the Peace Corps, but the Peace Corps was going to take like a year to place us somewhere. And, and we were a little bit impatient. And so through just random connections with another university, um, we found ourselves way out, like, I mean, way out in a city called Karamai, which is known as, a, as an oil city in Western China, okay. about, I'd say about 50 miles from the Kazakh border. And so that's how we initially right. landed in China. Huh. Wow. So, you know, China is a big country and, uh, you know, on our show notes, we usually have Google Maps and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, my Chinese geography skills aren't great. Can you tell us roughly where in China Xinjiang is located and maybe just a little bit what it's like? Is it alpine? Is it high desert? Is it, do you live in a big city? Do you live in a huge city? What's it like? Awesome. Yeah. So Xinjiang is the is far northwest. A lot of people in China like to think of, of China as the chicken, and Xinjiang would be the tail of the chicken, that far northwest corner. So geographically, we're talking north of Tibet. Um, we're, we border Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, all of those Central Asian countries. And, and it's pretty much as far west as you can get. It, the ancient Silk Road went through that area until it reached Xi'an in central China. So whereas most people are familiar with China on the east coast, we're talking about Beijing, Shanghai, and even south in Hong Kong. Uh, where I'm at in Xinjiang, or where I was at in Xinjiang, is, is really far west. And the majority of the people there, because of its location... 
Um, it's a good mix of Central Asia and Chinese. So 50% of the population there is, is what's known as Uyghur, um, which um, you may have heard a little bit in the news over the past couple of years, but they're really a, an incredible people group that relates a lot more. They look and, they, and their language, the Uyghur language, sounds a lot more like Turkish than it does Chinese. And so, you know, from one side of the city that I was in, I could have, you know, traditional Chinese food and then walk across the street and have a lamb pilaf uh, from the, the Uyghur people group. Hmm. Um, Josh, I kind of just ask one kind of background again before we go further on to the next question I had is, so you end up at this university in the Northwest in the tail, as you've described it. What, what did you start doing? Like, did you come over to study or work or what was it that you were doing? Yeah, initially we came over like a lot of people that come out to China do, which is to teach English. Um, and, and the plan was just to be out there for a year or two, really, you know, get some a fun experience. But we, we genuinely fell in love with the region and the people. And one of the questions that you guys asked that I didn't answer really well is, is kind of a little better the geography. So, so Xinjiang is home to the Taklamakan Desert, which is one of the largest mm-hmm. deserts in, in the world. It's the largest... Um, definitely for that region. And uh, as well as, you know, it, it, K2 uh, borders, has a, a, it, it, you can enter into K2 from Xinjiang. Uh, there are tons ah, of mountain that. ranges that, that cut through the Kunlun, the Tian Shan Mountains. Um, it's just a gorgeous array of different sceneries that you can, that you can see there. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, I'll say it like this to, to anybody that's listening here from, let's say, any of the European countries. It's the size of France, Germany, and the UK combined. Or if you're from the United oh, States, wow. it's California and Texas, and I think I, Wisconsin combined. Wow. I've, I've done the math before. It's a huge hmm. region. And so did you end up, like, because you were teaching English, did you, like, move to, like, a big city or, you know... I don't again, like, I don't really know what it's like. China's got so many big cities. I just assume it's a city, right? Exactly. Exactly. And you know, for China, like a small city could be something like a million or 2 million people, you know, like that's just, that's the way that China is. We were fortunate enough and I consider this fortunate. I'm not a huge big city person personally, but we started off in a, in, in a truly small city. So we're talking about 200,000 people. Um, it, it was literally a desert 60 years ago until they found oil. And then they built this city that, you know, over the past few years has had the highest GDP per capita because of the oil industry. Um, and we were, I think, two, my wife and I were, were both Americans, and we were two of only four foreign teachers in the area. So we, we were... I think it was a unique experience, not just being in China where foreigners are already kind of looked at differently, but say in a city like Beijing, it's become commonplace to see a foreigner. And, and, but out where we were at, it felt like we were going back in time to, to the days in the eighties, maybe when people would go to Beijing and, and it would just be, you know, people would be shocked to see a foreigner. That was, that was the way it felt for us. It is bloody huge. I was just looking at it at Google Maps. It looks even bigger than the region of Tibet. So you're you're up there. Uh, you've been teaching English. How do you start to get into the process of documenting the region and your life there? Well, I mean, initially, the, back when you know Blogspot was was a, a bigger thing and it wasn't blocked in China, I just I wanted to 
let my family back home know what we were experiencing and seeing? Because in the same way that maybe it feels really foreign to you right now, it, it felt incredibly foreign to us moving there for the first time. And we wanted to share a little bit of that with our family as well. And I remember the day, I think it was in 2008 or 2009 when, when I was blogging and, and I looked and, and the Wall Street Journal had, had linked to something that I had written. And I was, I mean, I was just floored. <laughs> I thought, you know, wow. I mean, there's, there's actually somebody besides cool. my family that's reading this and, and slowly huh. beginning to realize that, oh my gosh, there's, there's most people, even Chinese people that don't know much about this region. I mean, I liken it to maybe asking somebody in the United States what they think about Alaska. And, you know, for the majority of, of Americans, it's kind of like, wow, that's a, that's way far out there. You know, I, I don't even know what that would be like. That's the way most Chinese people think about this, the Xinjiang region is that it, it's just way <laughs> out there in the middle of nowhere. I kind of like that uh, analogy to Alaska, I guess, just from its remoteness and its size and everything. And and for me, it like seems totally natural. I spent many years as a writer. So just how different it is, like it, it naturally lends itself to like, oh, you want to start taking pictures of it or writing about it, uh, etc. But what was it about Xinjiang? Like what's so magical that made you end up wanting to like, share that experience with the outside world? I think for me, there, there are a couple things. And the first is, you know, over the past five, 10 years, at least for my community here in America, there's been a big change in the way that we view how, how we interact with the Muslim community, right? Now I'm not Muslim myself, but, but I've got people around me right now here in Dallas that are Muslim. And here I am moving to a region where 50% of the population is Muslim and 50% of the population is atheist. That's the Han Chinese. And there was really, I mean, and so we're talking about different cuisines. We've got halal versus, you know, every type of pork that you can imagine for the Han Chinese people. You're talking about differences in languages. You're talking about differences in, you know, regular cultural norms such as weddings, um, how you greet hmm. somebody at the door. And, and even just seeing those two things, comparing one, my home culture versus just one of them would have been really interesting to me, but comparing my home culture to two of them and, and two of them, which are, are honestly kind of clashing a little bit and, and seeing, seeing this mixture of these two cultures, um, and, and how they are interacting and how they maybe don't get along and, and in other ways in which they do get along. It was, it was really fascinating to me. And I loved getting to, to be a part of both of those cultures. Well, you sort of lightly touched on something. And I mean, um, I've been to, to Tibet and that area has, you know, been open, closed, open, closed over the years. And, and it's been in the news of it, Xinjiang. Like, what is it like traveling through a region that's reasonably heavily controlled and regulated? Yeah, and it is. I mean, the person who, the guy that was over Tibet, the governor of Tibet, I guess you'd call him, was moved to Xinjiang three years ago now, I think. And, and he's made similar changes. So when I first arrived in 06, my wife and I first arrived in Xinjiang in 06, things, I mean, of course, I didn't have anything to impair it with. I hadn't been to Beijing or anything like that, but, but things felt just normal. And then I remember fences going up and then I remember, you know, different uh, security forces and there, there were, you know, riots that did happen that, that kind of changed the way that the region, uh, regional security was implemented. So as recently as last year, 
um, and even coming into this year, things have really changed a lot. Uh, okay. I keep in contact with a lot of people, and, and that includes a lot of, let's say, security checkpoints. So I believe, was it, um, I think it was you, Scott, that went on a bike ride through Tibet. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So if you wanted to do that in Xinjiang, um, at this point, it would you could do it. It would just be incredibly hard because about every few miles you would reach a security checkpoint. And at that checkpoint, you'd have to show your passport. And more than likely, they would be surprised to find somebody biking through. So you'd have to sit there for 30 minutes of questioning. And you wouldn't get, you know, pulled in or jailed or anything like that. But it would just be so annoying. And that's kind of the way that travel around that region is unfortunately gone. Hmm. So, I mean... Tourists applying for a tourist visa to visit China, is it still possible for them to go to Xinjiang or do they are they going to have to get a special visa like Tibet? And, uh, you know, I mean, is it worthwhile, do you think, for the tourists to go through all of these loops? Is it is it too much of a hassle maybe or do you think it's still a viable tourist destination? I, you know, it's a good question. And I, and I think it's definitely changing. But at this point, I still recommend people to travel there, I, I, I obviously caution them as to what to expect. You don't need a special visa or a special permit like you do with Tibet yet. I mean, that, that could happen in the future. But as of right now, you don't need a special permit. Although I do recommend that people don't necessarily put Xinjiang on their itinerary when they're when they're applying for a Chinese visa. Because that I've heard hmm. some people say that, you know, that that has caused them to, uh, to be denied. Um, and, and it's not because there's anything wrong with traveling there. It's just, there's a lot going on. And I think that some of that China maybe uh, is embarrassed about and doesn't want foreigners to see. But if you land there, the reason I, I recommend people to go is because I, I think that there's a lot of news that's going out and, and it's going out from the Western press. And there's also a lot of propaganda going out from the, the Chinese press. And truly the only way for somebody to, to get a, a, a grasp of what's happening or, or really an understanding of these people is to go there and visit themselves, you know, because it, for some people they hear the Uyghur are Muslims and, and maybe that they, they automatically put up a wall. I don't know. Or maybe they hear that, um, you know, that the, something's happening in that region and that there've been riots and, and that, that brings in preconceived ideas or thoughts and, and really just going and traveling there. You see that the Chinese people are incredibly friendly that you meet and the Uyghur people are just unbelievable. Okay. So how about then, like, what are some major sightseeing attractions there? Like what, what could people like hope to see or what's like really the draw aside from the people and the culture? Well, as I, I mentioned earlier, the Silk Road ran right through there. Um, there were a couple different paths. And of course, the Silk Road isn't one path, as most people who studied that know. I mean, it, it took a lot of different paths, but a number of those went through Xinjiang. And so I've been lucky enough to you know, kind of retrace a lot of those different paths, which includes going into cities or um, oases like uh, Turpan, uh, Kashgar, hmm. uh, Korla, places where you can still see these old, let's say, uh, Buddhist temples or stupas you can go look in and walk through um, I walked through in Turpin there's a there's a town called Jiaohe in, in Chinese or, or um, that is a city that was built into the ground so literally instead of building up they dug out of the ground to create this this city and it and it's 
fascinating to walk through the history there and to see everything that that was um, part of the Silk Road and where a lot of the culture just went back, flowed back and forth, culture, religion, and seeing all that is is uh, fascinating. Okay, here's one we want you to give us a lot of detail in a short amount of time because we usually create a Google map. So if you had two weeks in Xinjiang, where would you go? Can you just quickly rattle off some names and places and kind of what you'd end up seeing there? And then we're going to put those onto a Google map to share with everyone. Absolutely. So more than likely, you're going to fly into the capital city, which is Urumqi. Um, and there's not a whole lot to see there except for something known as the Grand Bazaar or the International Grand Bazaar. Um, but from there, mm-hmm. I would I would jump on a train and go straight to Turpan, which now China has high-speed trains going everywhere, and you can get a high-speed train to Turpan in less than an hour. And from there, check out a number of ancient cities, Jiaohe, Gaochang, um, and then go from there to the opposite side. I mean, it's a 12-hour train ride, but it's a fun train ride. Sorry, did I say 12? I meant 20, 20-hour mm. train ride. Over, 20. Yeah, <laughs> overnight is usually the best way to do that. Uh, down to Kashgar. And uh, in Kashgar, in I think Scott, you would really enjoy this if you've if you've biked through um, Tibet up to the, the the Everest base camp. From Kashgar, you can actually bike up to the Pakistan border along the Karakoram Highway, and I've done that mm. a number a couple of times, and it is just it's gorgeous because we've got um, Tashkurgan, um, which is a mostly Tajik. Um, town and then you pass through different areas that have Kyrgyz people and then of course you can if in Kashgar is primarily Uyghur so those are the three primary stops for anybody that wants to go to uh, to Xinjiang you're gonna be coming through Urumqi but you stop at Turpan Kashgar and then I w- always recommend people take that Karakoram Highway up to Tashkurgan. Hey, I'm looking at uh, the Google Maps and some photos here. And for Kashgar, there's a photo of a big, fuzzy-looking camel. So can people ride camels up there? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, you, of course, you've got that desert that's nearby. It's it, it's a two-hour drive, one-and-a-half to two-hour drive, if you wanted to like seriously be in the desert. Now, if you just wanted to ride a camel, you could do that in the city and, and you'd be fine. But if you want to be in the desert, there's there's some cool stuff. Yeah. You know, this is really interesting. We should put you in touch with uh, our friend Jeff. He did an episode for Talk Travel Asia on travel to North Korea. And he keeps asking me if I want to go up to Xinjiang. So uh, if I don't make it, at least we'll send him up there. Yes. And then we had one, uh, some friends of ours, John and Kathleen, who went skiing in Iran. And uh John actually had a, he got kicked by a camel, so I want to warn people that they shouldn't necessarily <laughs> uh, ride camels uh, on their holiday. They're not the most comfortable animal, honestly. I'm I don't know how people used to ride those for weeks on end. It just baffles me. Okay, so uh, what are some other surprises? Uh, you know, like re- expectations versus reality of of the region. <sighs> expectations versus reality you know for me maybe think, sorry, to, maybe to, to help is like you know you're going to china and you're saying that like you know this is a, at least a 50 percent muslim area like before i traveled mm. to china i had like these ideas of what china was going to be like and what the chinese people were going to be like and in general i found it very yeah. different i found the chinese people very different uh you know i was expecting everybody cutting in line in front of you all the time which which did happen to some degree but i also found the chinese people to be very hospitable and friendly and, and really interested in meeting me you know 
Um, so yeah. I, sometimes it's hard, I think, because like you've spent quite a number of years there that you, you take lots of things for, for granted now. So I'm thinking like when you're getting around, like there's no signs in English or anything or, you know, like getting on a, on a train, you don't know which train to get on, do you? And, and, and you can't really ask for help so much either. Like, uh, are those some of the challenges people might expect to experience? Yeah, I think that most people, when they first enter into Xinjiang, they're expecting China, right? Because, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's, it's part of the Chinese map. And so you, you think that you're going to enter China. And for those, let's say even those who have lived in Beijing or Shanghai, it is a complete culture shock. They feel like they've entered a new country. And I think that's the biggest surprise that most people have is that it, it is different than what they expect. So most of the signs are written in Chinese and Arabic. Mm. But you're right, there is nothing in English. So you're not going to be able to easily get around without understanding at least a little bit of the Chinese language. Uh, you'd be well served in the South if you were able to speak Uyghur or even uh, Turkish a little bit because there's a, there's a little bit of crossover between those languages. But you're correct. It's, it is very much um, a different look, a different feel than the rest of China. And so you can, you can easily kind of get lost and, and forget that you're in China. Likewise, at the same time, a lot of people think that because, you know, you enter into a lot of parts of China and it is just packed wall to wall with people, right? Tall buildings and, and you just can't escape it. And I like, again, bringing back that Xinjiang to Alaska analogy. Xinjiang, there are obviously a few cities that have a dense population, but outside of that, it is incredibly remote. It is extremely um, unpopulated. So, you know, I, it was easy for me to drive 30 minutes outside of town and then find myself hiking in the middle of nowhere. I mean, like nobody around and, and being able to either hike or bike or just get away. And I loved that about yeah, well, Xinjiang. Maybe you bought a car or something though. Yeah. Like how are, how are travelers going to get around? I mean, you mentioned the train earlier, but I, like you said uh, earlier, like you, you don't necessarily want to put this on your itinerary when you're applying for a visa. So I don't know, can you just contact a tour company that's going to help you get around? Or is this really just for very adventurous, uh, independent travelers? I would say that this probably skews more to the adventurous traveler. Um, however, when we're talking about, um, and this is more logistical than anything, but when you're talking about visas, China issues 10, for most countries right now, they issue 10-year multi-entry visas, which means you just need to get the visa and then you can go anywhere. And and it really doesn't matter what you put on the itinerary because once you get the visa, it's not like they're checking the itinerary wherever you go. You can you can head into wherever. And so that's generally why I tell people, you know, just put put down you're going to Beijing, Shanghai, Xi'an, the, the major tourist spots in China. And then if you want to make a detour into Xinjiang, you can. But you're right. I you know, one, I did have an unfair advantage with a car, but but granted that was like six, seven years into my life in Xinjiang. So I, I spent the first, you know, five or six years, one, learning the language. I didn't enter in knowing the language. And two, without my own form of transportation uh, other than a bike. And, and I think it's possible, but you have to come in with that sense of adventure, which to me is, is kind of like a lot of Asia, once you get out of South, even Southeast Asia, once you get out of the major cities where would knowing the language really help? Absolutely. Would having your own car be amazing? <laughs> of course it would. It would make things a whole lot easier. Is it absolutely necessary? 
as long as you have a good attitude about it and an adventurous spirit, I, I think that you can still enjoy your time and, and, and really experience some amazing things. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, you have a couple of travel books now, like kind of jumping into your years of experience. I mean, how did you get into writing travel books and tell us a bit about the, the ones you have? Yeah, well, I, I've worked with, um, and this is not a, obviously to pat my own back. It's just, I, I got a chance to work with Lonely Planet, um, with Fodors and, and, um, and a couple others, just helping them to update their, their guides. And I noticed that there was just very little information. And when I tried to, to help them add information, um, you know, they've got a limit to what they can put into each chapter. And so their, their Silk mm-hmm. Road chapter, they had to just hit the highlights. And, and really, the highlights are great. But it's also the places where everybody goes, and, and it's and it's not always, in my opinion, the most interesting places to see. And so, you know, after a few years of of really getting to travel around, my wife and I, I decided that I just wanted to to see what it would be like to to write my own and and to publish that and see how it went. And you know, considering that there's absolutely no competition <laughs> other than you know a chapter in in a couple guidebooks. Um, it, it was good. You know, it, it's, it's been, I think more than anything, I, I like receiving emails from people who are like, who, who just tell me that my trip to Xinjiang was that much better because I was able to read the book and, and be able to your book and, and be able to, to kind of see the region through your eyes and, and, and understand what's worth seeing and what's not. Because I, I, I also, I'm pretty blunt about what I think is worth seeing and, and what's not worth seeing. Well, I think this will be a good episode for people to go to our website, which is talktravelasia.com, to check out our show notes because uh, we'll have links to uh, everything that you could possibly share with our readers to help them plan a visit to Xinjiang, including maybe your YouTube uh, channel. Scott was telling me he looked at some videos uh, about some of the food there um, and said it sounded pretty cool. So uh, what can people find on your YouTube channel? And we'll put a link to it on the, or try to embed it in something, maybe a video. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you had to embed one video, there's one that's just about like the top 10 foods, uh, that you could, that you could eat there. It's, and one of my favorites was there's a, there's actually a stuffed lamb intestine, um, which I, I liked, (laughs) I like to nickname, um, what did I call it? Uh, it was like a, a, a Uyghur sushi where basically it, it felt like it was sushi where, where this, instead of seaweed, we're talking about a lamb intestine lining and then everything was just rice and, and meat inside. Um, but yeah, there's, I loved exploring different places, places that were off the map, um, trying to find something that was let's say on the map of an explorer like Oral Stein from the early 1900s and see if it was still there. And, you know, sometimes it wasn't, sometimes it was. And those were the type of things that I filmed and tried to put on the YouTube channel. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And the quality is pretty good. I'm assuming your wife was helping you shoot them or something. But um, yeah, we have a, a lot of great links that we'll share off the show notes. We'll get a Google map up there with some of those places that you uh, recommended, Josh, and we'll uh, get some links to your books as well. So thanks so much for uh, sharing a bit of truly a really far flung quarter of Asia that we've never talked about. So thanks so much, Josh. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, really interesting stuff. You know, uh, if, if I find some time to take my friend Jeff up on traveling your way, uh, we'll give you uh, give you a shout. Yeah, you should. I think you guys would both uh, enjoy it. 
So, Scott, that was a pretty interesting talk we just had, and uh, I'm glad that we were able to get introduced to Josh because uh, it only took 99 episodes, but we finally made it to China. Yeah, we've mentioned China and other ones in little bits, but we've never done a full dedicated episode. And I think this is right kind of uh, up our alley, you know, somewhere really remote, like, you know, I've been to Tibet, but you look at the size and where Tajikistan, or, or sorry, where uh, Xinjiang is in the world, we were just looking at a Google map and all the bordering countries, you're like, wow, it is truly a really out there area that I know little about except what I've read in the news probably the last handful of years but yeah really wild and it also is a bit humbling because you know I think of like when we say we live in Cambodia or Thailand or moved here 20 years ago like where he's gone is even like wow that's out there right yeah, and 2006 was still like back in the day, right? Which wasn't even that long ago, which, uh, you know, goes to show like how quickly China changes, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know if there's any Air Asia flights uh, direct from Bangkok to uh, <laughs> Xinjiang. But uh, yeah, definitely these are some challenging areas probably to get to, you know? Um, so, you know, if people are interested in going, uh, obviously the first place to go is our show notes because uh, we're going to have those Google Maps and links to the videos and his yep. books and all that, which I think will be like indispensable for anybody going there. Um, so check that out. And just dream like I'd love to make it there someday. I just don't see it happen in the next few years. But I kind of ended up going down a rabbit hole, right? Once I started looking into Josh, I watched a few of his videos, checked out his book, then I bounced over to another page. And it's just kind of fun to, I mean, learn about really wild spots. It gets you thinking about other places you'd like to go. So I really appreciated that part of it, that it was an out there episode. And just before we uh, say goodbye, please, um, Patreons, Patreon is a site where our patrons, I meant to say, can sponsor and keep this thing going. Trevor and I pay for the editing and the hosting out of our own little pocket. And you can go to patreon.com or to our website on the left side. There's a donate button. And from as little as a dollar a month or up, you can just uh, sponsor us and show us a little financial love. So please do that. So from Bangkok, Thailand, this is Scott saying thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with the Mighty 100 in two weeks, huh, Trevor? Yep, number 100. Uh, Going to be the best episode ever as soon as we come up with a, an idea for it, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's quite a milestone. 100's coming up, so uh, we're glad you enjoyed the, the past 99 episodes, we hope. And, uh, you know, again, uh, come back in a couple of weeks for, for the big one. So thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, so long, Scott. See you soon. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom and Camp Rui?